Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. A roast as dark as the night. Perfect for fueling the cryptid research and mad ravings required for your podcasting. Don't mind the red eyes. He's just trying to warn you of the bridge. The bridge. Finally, from the caffeine-addled brains of Spring Hill Jack Coffee and last podcast on the left, we bring you Mothman's Red Eye Blend. Yes, delicious Panama beans. Go to lastpodcastmerch.com to order yours today. <laughs> Magic dance. Hello, it's me, your Bruzo Hoggle Holden, and I'm not gonna run away from you, little girl, feeling weird in your pants when you're watching Labyrinth. Yes, little girl, you're feeling weird in your pants, aren't you? Look at his bulge. Isn't it interesting? That's the way I've decided to intro this episode, Jake. Your turn. And I'm your wizard, Sir Didymus. I'm little, but I want to fight things. Tally-ho! That's the joke. That's the joke in the whole movie. I'm a little fox fucker, and I'm going to <laughs> right, beat you up curse. with my little stick. He didn't curse. I'm Sir Didymus. This is such a fun one. Yes, that's right. We're doing Labyrinth. We're doing our uh, episode on Labyrinth this week, and I think it's long time coming. You know, we definitely have done a two-parter on the Muppets. Uh, that I already feel like we should go back and redo just by literally looking at my notes <laughs> from that episode. Every time I do that, I'm like, we should go back to the first year of stuff and completely redo those. Eventually we might, but uh, it's nice to circle back around. I can't cry again, Holden. I uh, can't listen to that Big Bird funeral song and just <laughs> collapse into a heaving pile of emotions again. I do have such an interesting um, enjoyment for Labyrinth. It is very much, you know... Jake, you just told me right before we started a very interesting thing, and that is... I had never seen the movie until we did the episode this week. Now, I, why, honestly, why do you think that is? Because I would say I have had an issue now where I'm realizing I'm going back and rediscovering a lot of movies that I totally didn't watch because they were apparently girl movies for girls <laughs> back in the day. And um, realizing now, oh no, these are just really cool, good movies that are really fun to watch, I can go back and enjoy. I think it's partly that, but also Labyrinth is fucking weird, man, and is give, makes you feel weird, I think. There's reasons, there's things, there's all sorts of, like, it's, like, uh, 
it's at once the weirdest thing on earth and then at the same time the most straight down the middle normal thing in terms of like uh Alice in Wonderland, The Wizard of Oz. Totally. Like there's an entire legacy of fairy tales and storybooks where like there once was a little girl and she was very misbehaved. She hated her family and so she decided to do something rash and therefore she had to go through trials where she met this funny fellow yeah, and yeah. this funny fellow and this funny fellow and then she learned her lesson, the end. Like that's such- I think the weird angle to it though, the weird edge to it is just that it's also delving in these themes of like a girl becoming a woman mm-hmm. and- David Bowie very purposely being sexual in this well in it's this film. okay so that is so the themes is a motherfuck to, to <laughs> weave through because as we'll get into who actually wrote the story and what the story was supposed to be uh-huh passed off so many times that it's almost impossible to you know uh actually get a handle on what is and isn't part of the lesson of the movie um but there's if you are looking for it, dear God, there is so much psychological baggage and things to unpack. Uh, yeah. You know, everything from like you know, uh, the photos surrounding uh, Sarah, played by Jennifer Connelly's uh, mirror in her bedroom, the scraps, all the characters, uh, the, her relationship with her stepmother and her father. So much goes unsaid and is supposedly like really important, but you wouldn't know that unless you were like freeze framing shit. And I think it has to do with the fact that the screenplay went through so many revisions. Yeah. And when it boils down to it, like Jim Henson and the, you know, his whole crew were almost more about just like puppetry. They just wanted a good puppet movie. Yeah. That could like kind of overshadow the, uh, the Muppet stink that Jim Henson was a little bit, uh, kind of, uh, he, he was resentful of. Yeah. Yeah. I will say the reason specifically I never saw Labyrinth is because when I was a little kid watching the HBO preview weekend on the floor of my uh, living room as a tiny baby, I saw a few episodes of Jim Henson's The Storyteller, Mm. which was a similar like, oh, you thought Jim Henson means cute, wacky vaudeville puppets. Well, no, it's actually a horrifying dark gaze into the abyss with photorealistic animatronic clusterfuck horrors. Yeah. And it like scarred me. And I still get a weird sense of menace and dread anytime I see some like Henson workshop that isn't explicitly like a felt frog. Yeah. That's just my own psychosis. I talked about gremlins. Gremlins do. Same deal. There's something about creepy animatronic and creepy practical puppet effects that unsettle me deeply. Yeah, that's the thing. I think, you know, I introduced myself as Hoggle at the beginning of this episode. I think Hoggle was an immediate, like, alienation for me. Any puppet that was designed like that and, like, moved and talked like that made me kind of upset. And I think that The Labyrinth in general is, it's almost like a horror movie, the way it sets itself up. It's very scary. You've got, you know, what, what? And then you have these weird elements of, like, musical numbers and you know dance magic dance and all this kind of stuff that that lightens it up but i mean it's it's very it's not only dance magic make you feel weird in the pants Mm -hmm. but it's also uh creepy as hell so and the greatest example of that what might be the shaft of many hands Mm. that she falls through and how like intrusive that feels that all these hands are like grabbing this girl and you know and then the way and then all the like but then all the inventive puppetry and all the cool stuff they did with the hands on top of it is like, wow, that's incredibly impressive. And I feel really weird right now, like all, you know, at the same time. 
But what I like, though, is that it feels like that was like an, you know, like a Howard the Duck style 80s mistake. Mm-hmm. But actually, if you go back and, you know, I'll give you the quotes in a little bit, but you learn more about Henson's collaboration with Brian Froud and with, um, what's his name, Monty Python guy, uh, that uh, that was intentional. They were trying to show this journey of a girl becoming a woman and maybe trying to stay, keep that childish nature. Essentially, essentially, like those last few stages was a very interesting part in development for me. I think the most interesting time in a person's development to me, one of them at least, is that time when you're like still have stuffed animals, but David Bowie's making you feel weird in the pants. You know what I mean? And you don't, and you and you're dealing with the stuffed animal. You're looking at the stuffed animal. You're like, I love playing with this stuffed animal. And then at the same time, you're like, but then also this guy has this like weird thing going on down there, and it's making me feel all strange in my pants. And uh, yeah, it's such a bizarre uncomfortable time and that's why I think the movie's so uncomfortable in so many ways right because it just has this vibe of like you know um, it's a dangerous place we're moving into and the world isn't going to be quite so like girl you know uh, fun and childish for a girl anymore it's going to be yeah I don't know right I do you know where I'm kind of this this uh basket I'm attempting to weave. No, there's definitely the major theme. The major theme of the movie is like arrested development and kind of go and taking uh, responsibility for your life. Yeah. um, In a way that is weirdly like is weirdly. How do I say this? Through all the symbolism and through all the kind of unspoken themes in the movie, hits way closer to home than some Pixar movie or I, I let me say a DreamWorks movie where it's just kind of on the nose. In yeah. fact, what really struck me so hard about this movie, watching it for the first time, is how much kind of the post, I don't know, post Spielberg, post DreamWorks, post Katzenberg, uh hacha cha cha, like here's a here's a wacky Lady Gaga joke for the for the adults in the audience. And everything is like there is just very little snark within the uh, within the movie. It is a very down the road uh, fairy tale kind of for children to watch with parents. And there's very it's it doesn't feel like a commercial movie. It feels like something right. from PBS. It feels like something from a more uh, uh, sincere era. Yes, which is ironic because uh, as we'll get into in the movie in the in the notes. The the main goal of the movie, from Jim Henson's perspective, was to make up for Dark Crystal. Hmm. Like, Dark Crystal is a down-the-middle Tolkien riff. The uh, head Gelfling, you know, our main character, Jen, Jen the Gelfling, is just kind of dragged along as the chosen one from guide to guide, kind of just doing as he's told. The evil people want the... Mag- like, it's all very rote. It's not a very dynamic story, and it is kind of unsettling. And the number one criticism was, well, I associate Jim Henson with the Muppets. I associate them with like humor and a little panache and a little razzle dazzle. And Dark Crystal is just kind of a gloomy bummer. And so even as Jim Henson is creating what he thinks is this more commercial, more lighthearted romp through a fantasy world, the themes just still ring so true and the sincerity and honesty of the storytelling just like 
makes it stand out in a way that uh, I, you can't even make a children's movie like this anymore. Not at all. And then also just the amazing inclusion of Bowie and these like five songs that he wrote for the movie that have now become enduring classics, especially Dance Magic Dance. And people love it and love that, that you know, Bowie really like does such a great job in this movie. I guess we should also say that, you know, this film did not do well in the box office. It did very, very poorly. We'll elaborate more on that later, but uh, it has since became the cult classic that it is. And, you know, people fucking love Labyrinth now. And, you know, what my thought about it was while I was watching it was like, you know what? This movie does work way better out of a movie theater and in a family room on a rainy Sunday, Mm -hmm. right? That's the perfect atmosphere for a film like this. And you get lost in it and, you know, and, and, um, it's, it's just more raw and like, yeah, out in the room with you. And, uh, also, the kind I don't of know. Yeah. stuff like uh, the Fire Gang. Yeah, oh god, uh, and a lot of the how effects. dare you bring up the Fire Gang? It's very, it's we're gonna try to breeze right past the, the Fire, fire gang. gang. It's very upsetting. It's very upsetting that whole part. It gave everybody nightmares. That, uh, which is great, by the way. But I'm saying stuff like the Fire Gang, where the come, where the composite effects, like the matte backgrounds, uh, the optical thing, where they tried to hide the puppeteers. It's a very shoddy effect. Like even Henson admitted. That it just does, you know, it just falls short because they are trying to do all this. It the idea that there were no uh, kind of breaks, there was no consideration for what can be done on screen. They just trusted their craftsmanship to make everything happen. Analog is amazing. And on VHS, I was just going to say some of the rougher edges of those analog effects kind of gets smoothed over. It's kind of like a uh, video signal Vaseline that just lets even more of the reality of the movie shine through way more than maybe if it had come out in the 4K era. That's all I'm saying. I'm also glad you brought the fire game because this movie has what every important children's movie must have from Pee Wee Herman's Great Adventure to even Who Framed Roger Rabbit, even though it's a little more adulty. It's got to have that moment where you have to hide behind the couch because it's so scary what's happening on the screen. And uh, the Fire Gang was a perfect example of just like, why is this for kids? These just creatures are just like throwing their body parts all over the place. It's incredibly disturbing. And threatening to do the same to Jennifer Connelly. And he looked just like me. It just, it just has that moment in the movie. You know what I mean? That Holden, can I, uh, can I drop the first like, huh? That's a neat fact of the episode. Please, God, help us, please. Uh, Jim Henson was a huge fan of uh, author Maurice Sendak, mm-hmm. who uh, is a children's book author most famously known for the wild, Where the Wild Things Are. And the Fire Gang was originally supposed to be called the Wild Things. And it even fits in the song, ah. Where the Wild Things. Yeah. But in a screening, Sendak was like very offended because they did not get permission to use the name. And so they quickly changed it to Fire Gang Mm -hmm. based on their red coloring in order to appease him. Interesting. The fireies. And there's even a copy of Where the Wild Things Are in uh, the character Sarah's bedroom during that slow pan in the opening of the movie. And they had to give credit to Sindak in the the credit roll at the end. I forgot exactly what it was, but they say that the idea for this... 
uh, had nothing to do intentionally with the work of Sindak, but on you know it was just so similar. They had to yeah. go back and acknowledge the connector, and of course put the book in her bedroom. Uh, all right, here we go. Let's talk about Labyrinth, a 1986 musical fantasy film directed by Jim Henson and executive produced by George Lucas. The film is about a 16-year-old girl named Sarah and her journey through a giant maze to find and rescue her infant half-brother Toby from Jareth the Goblin King, played Holden, by David um, Bowie. Just for the record, I'm going to be doing a lot of voices in this episode, so <laughs> uh, this is my George Lucas voice. Okay. And to tell the difference, a uh, slightly happier George Lucas is Jim Henson. Hi, this is Jim Henson. <laughs> <laughs> and off, off, fine, I'll do Bowie. I'll just I'll always be singing. David, now that you're here, listen, we have to address the accusations that you've had over the years, especially the uh, 15-year-old groupie that you uh, de-virginized in the 1970s. Uh, really adds a sh- uh, a horrible pallor over the proceedings of the movie. Is that's like that's got to weigh heavily on you. Let's dance. <laughs> oh, I love this song. <laughs> Let's dance. That's how he gets away with it. That's... Every time, <laughs> all the time. Oh, uh, we'll, hear, we'll hear from more of those guys <laughs> in just a little bit. Maybe we'll knock on their door and they'll enter the room in just a little while. Uh, before we go on, uh, we'll also say most of the rest of the characters in the film, besides Toby and Sarah, are played by puppets uh, out of Jim Henson's Creature Shop. And the whole thing is based on conceptual designs by Brian Froud, which was my favorite discovery. I actually purchased a few Brian Froud books for my daughter to read to my my bebe. And uh, we'll talk about that soon because I had a wonderful like time with these books, uh, getting these books in and enjoying the artwork and all of it. So we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Uh, but let's, first of all, here, look, we did... You know, a pretty decent rundown of Jim Henson in the Muppet episode, but I will give you the crash course on Henson right here, right now, and just bring you up to date for where we're at at the beginning of Labyrinth. Uh, So, uh, Henson uh, uh, said the biggest event of his adolescence was when the family got a TV. He was highly inspired by the ventriloquist he saw in there and also heard on the radio. He began working at a local television channel while at high school, creating puppets for a Saturday morning children's show called The Junior Morning Show. He then studied puppetry at college and put on his own puppet show on another local TV channel. Uh, The show was called Sam and Friends, which did have a prototype for what would become Kermit the Frog. The show got him popular enough to get commercial work and also start appearing on late night television as a frequent guest. He and his wife end up moving, who's helping him uh, do do all this stuff uh, with the show. They end up moving to NYC. uh, They get steady work uh, out there and form Muppets Inc. And it was around this time that he hires writer Jerry Jewell and puppeteer Frank Oz to essentially replace his wife, who then goes off to uh, raise the kids which he didn't do a lot of. After working their way up, performing a lot of different side gigs on their uh, with their puppets, Rolf was an early favorite on late-night talk shows. They launched Sesame Street in 1969. Several years after that, they do The Muppet Show, um, and uh, you can learn, again, more about the whole coming together of The Muppet Show and our Muppets episode. But I will say one important factor that I think brings us to such a British film 
uh, as Labyrinth is the fact that, you know, they had such trouble getting the Muppets off the ground, the, or the Muppet Show, that is. So uh, they ended up having to move to Britain and doing it on British television for a little while. And then it actually went back over to America where it became super popular. And that is how he ends up out in Britain, making connections out there, getting involved in the culture. And I think that is a lot of how we get him to uh, a lot of the collaborations that he ends up with and location shooting location stuff when it comes to labyrinth labyrinth was shot at uh the famous elstree studios yes. which is uh almost synonymous with 80s genre pictures just the a very well-equipped large studio in uh England. the show leads to the muppet movie which is a huge success which leads to the great muppet caper all the while they're also working on a little known sequel called the empire strikes back now we're in the early 80s and he's working alongside george george lucas in order to uh with frank oz create the character of yoda that's how george lucas gets in the cut mm. now he's up in it now he's up in that henson fucking clan you know what i mean making shit happen he's in the henson gang of rebels then he does Muppets Take Manhattan. And then he decides he wants to work on something very different, as Jake was referring to earlier, than Sesame Street and the Muppets trying to get out of that shadow. That is how he would end up turning to the Dark Crystal. So here we are, uh, back in the mid-70s. Henson has, was inspired by an illustration in a Lewis Carroll poetry book that depicted crocodiles living in a palace wearing fancy robes and jewelry. And it was Frank Oz who stated Henson wanted to, quote, get back to the darkness of the original Grimm's fairy tales, feeling it was a good thing to scare kids every once in a while, which, again, is what I was talking about when, I, when I'm talking about the fiery flammers, whatever their name is. I, it really has to, I, it cannot be stressed enough how much, how uh, achingly German, Protestant, and patriarchal the original Grimm's fairy tales are. Yes. Uh, besides the, like, different than the Disney version we've come to know, uh, you know, half of them are just like, little little Linda uh, wanted an extra apple for dinner. Yeah. So then she got sent to hell. Like, it's really just harsh shit. And that is why, kids, if you try to have extra candy for dessert, a witch will rip off your feet. <laughs> the, uh, oh my God, there was like uh, one grim fairy tale is called like uh, Mary's Key or something. And it's about the Virgin Mary offering a child the keys to heaven, <laughs> but she can only open the uh, like 10 of the 11 doors to heaven. And the kid peeks into the 11th door. And so the Virgin Mary herself banishes the little girl into a forest forever. And that is why, kids, if you do not look before crossing this street, a wolf will have sex with your mother in front of you. Okay? Now <laughs> They'll you think only about kill that. your grandma and then use her corpse <laughs> as a costume. And it's not that crazy. A dog will wear your skin if you don't say please and thank you, okay? So think about that next time, you fucking piece of shit. Okay. I do like I like this Grimm's Holden. What as a Patreon <laughs> bonus, Holden does Grimm's fairy tale, <laughs> and that is why little one. If you ask f to have fun, then a uh, crocodile <laughs> will uh, eat your. I've lost it. Whatever. I worked too hard for this. <laughs> that is why little one. If, <laughs> if you want to leave the house. A dog will fuck the mailman to death. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I found it with that last one. All right, here we go. Cut the bad one and keep the good, or keep it all. I don't even know anymore. But uh, regardless, 
I agree. I like I, I like scaring kids, and I think kids should be scared more often. I think we're starting to get back to that a little bit more recently, but I feel like for the longest time, we were way too... We've been way too kind to these children for the longest time in our media. They, it's so important to terrify them, uh, uh, you know, under the guise of, look, it's a movie called Labyrinth, and it's going to be so nice and so fun, and then this fucking dog creatures ripping its own head off and fucking throwing it at you know what I mean it's awesome anyways uh, he also wanted to do a film that had zero humans on screen for the entire length of it just puppets so that's what Dark Crystal was the most importantly for this film Henson hires Brian Froud as the concept artist for it after seeing one of his paintings in the book uh, Once Upon a Time some contemporary illustrations of fantasy and I think it's actually the cover illustration which is really cool looking I wanted to get a hold of that, but it's harder, I think. That one seems to be out of print. Uh, looks very, very cool and definitely sets a tone, sets a mood of this very British, very, you know, British fairy tale inspired look. And I love his illustrations. Froud was born in Winchester, England in 1947. He was an only child who grew up in a rural area and he went on to go to school at Maidstone College of Art for painting. Froud said, in college, I became interested in folk tales and fairy tales. Gradually, I became more and more interested in the underlying meaning of it all and the possibility of the reality of real fairies. I discovered a book of fairy tales by Arthur Rackham. His pictures of trees with faces reminded me of how I felt about the world, how I felt that trees have souls and everything in the world does. I started to draw fairy tale images, so I was sort of, in a sense, a self-taught whilst at college. And also, while at college, he becomes very alienated by his like fellow classmates and his art classes as he, quote, got fed up with the fact that you can paint terrible pictures, and if you explain them in an erudite way, it's called great art. I thought this was rubbish. I always believed that the picture itself should tell the story. So I then went and studied graphic design because it seemed to me that advertising was is more honest that way, which is such a funny I mean, thought to listen, me. I do, you know, I don't want to, there's, there's a lot of like proud Luddites in art criticism. And, you know, just because you don't get it doesn't mean it doesn't have value. But also having taken art classes, he is a million percent right. Absolutely. <laughs> as long as you can be like, actually, this represents my journey into womanhood and also uh, the fear of a child within the starlight. Um, you can get away with a lot of stuff. Yeah. Which is which was bullshit because when I did a bad painting and I was like, this represents how cool I think the Ninja Turtles are. <laughs> they were like, that's not good enough. <laughs> Work on your pattern. <laughs> it reminds me of even theater class when, you, when people would get up and do scene work and they were just so clearly like full of shit, like just kind of walked in and did the scene. But because of the way they were did it, they just always got applauded and <laughs> it was so frustrating. And then I like really tried to do like method acting and then I'd always get like shit on because I'm trying, <laughs> you know what I mean? So annoying. Anyways, yeah, you just brought me back to my bad brain place. So, uh, yeah, but he starts working as a commercial illustrator in Soho, London, and then, quote, but once I started on that, I realized that was really boring. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> All the while, he's illustrating books by a couple different children's authors featured in a collection of modern British illustrators called, of course, Once Upon a Time some contemporary illustrators of fantasy. And it was around this time, a New York publisher named Ian Ballantyne saw the success of a Dutch book called Gnomes, which was like a biology book for the fictional creatures and decided to recruit two British illustrators to make a similar work, but for fairies. That's, I didn't real. I, I, if I did not, because 
so many people I knew growing up had that gnomes book. Yeah. Uh, which is what David the Gnome, that like weird Nickelodeon cartoon from the late 80s, early 90s was based on. Yeah. I had no idea Brian Froud's fairy book was like absolutely just like, make me that, but for a that, different thing. but for British like folklore, essentially. So yeah, Brian Froud and Alan Lee is the other illustrator. Lee would go on to create a lot of work around the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, become very well known for that, and would end up serving as concept artist for Peter Jackson. Since Tolkien films. So great, obviously great combo of collaborators. The result was 1978's Fairies, spelled F-A-E-R-I-E-S. And man, this book rules. I just picked up like the anniversary edition in a nice hardback. It's easy to find, easy, should be easy to get. And this is an illustrated compendium that explores the history, customs, and habitat of fairies, as well as goblins, dwarves, pixies, elves, leprechauns, ogres, boggarts, banshees, mermaids, and selkies. Selkies are sea, seal people, Jake. <laughs> so, yeah, I picked... I picked this book up. That he also put out a book called Good Fairies, Bad Fairies, which is really fun because you have to flip it to the other side and it'll be upside down. It'll be the bad fairy part mm. um, going from back to front and the good fairy parts going front to back. He also did a book with his wife called Trolls, uh, among other things. I, I grabbed all three of those because these are going to be the books that I will be reading to Winnie. And uh, they're awesome for that. And honestly... I probably would have picked them up anyways. They're really cool. The illustrations are awesome. I love the approach. I love this like field guide to, you know, essentially all things that Neil Gaiman loves to write Mm -hmm. about, right? And it's so well done and it feels so real. I love this kind of world building that there are stories in it and there's poetry and things like that. But also it's just cool just to have like facts about, you know, last night I was reading to Winnie all a rundown of what like the fairy kingdom is like, you know. The other fun thing about fairies too is that they're just so like horrible and dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know, you always look at them as these cute little things, but they're no, just like the nightmares. No, the faithful cold and the faithful cold great danger. Oh, yeah. I mean, you never want to get mixed up with them, but it's cool to learn about and uh, think about. But anywho, just really cool stuff. I'm really, really excited about that. So, I mean, we have like uh, one of the premier children's entertainers and crafts artisans with a army of incredible creature designers in his workshop uh, and this incredible artist doing the concepts and helping build the world, surely this these two titans of creativity would create a blockbuster movie. I mean, kind of. I mean, in, in you know, no, not on the outset. I will say that. But they did, and they did really, it was a true collaboration between the two of them before they even brought in a screenplay writer. And it was a lot of it was based on just Froud's home and and Henson's meeting with him and his his pet as well will come into play. Froud uh, uh, first met with Henson to work on Dark Crystal. He said, he came to see me in Devon, England and fell in love with the countryside there. The gnarled trees covered in moss, the beautiful rocks and streams. He said, I want some of this feeling in the film. They slowly spent five years creating the creatures and world that would become the Dark Crystal. Quote, then having said to myself, never ever again, Jim said, perhaps we can do another one. And I said, oh, why not? So Henson, this time wants more comedy in the movie. He wants more character interaction in the film, less less about plot, more about character. And obviously he's going to have some humans in, in this next movie as well. Froud said, I came up with the idea of it being a labyrinth. 
And he said he wanted to put humans in it this time. And I said, well, what about a baby? And I suddenly had this vision of a baby surrounded by goblins. In European fairy tales, that's what goblins do. They steal babies. I painted a picture of a baby surrounded by goblins and then continued to paint other conceptual things, just ideas for characters. And the story developed from there. Then the idea of the labyrinth occurred to me. Because the thing about labyrinths is that they can have a metaphorical sense. And they they don't have to just be a literal place. They can be something else as well. And we see that from the outset in Labyrinth that it's like, yeah, this is all like not up is down. Every nothing means, any, you know what I mean? Nothing means every, anything, but everything means something. You take too much something. for granted, Holden. Yeah, exactly. Hey, mom. First things first. Thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help. And yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The baby piece, which is very famous, you can look it up, uh, has this like beaming golden baby in the middle of all these freaky goblin faces all gathered around the child, like curious and enthralled by uh, by him. According to Froud, he drew this, uh, this baby uh, six months before his son Toby was conceived. Yeah. And by the time the film had come out, the baby looked like the baby from the painting so accurately yeah. that there was like almost no question that they were gonna use his son in the film. Apparently Lexi said that's a thing. That that people do that all the like artists will like draw their own child before they appear, uh, just weirdly know what they're going to look like in some subconscious way. I mean, it makes sense that you know if you're if you are an artist, you're more familiar with your own facial features and maybe your significant other's facial features. So if you're just cranking out a nose and some eyes and a mouth, like you'll end up using shapes that you know more intimately. Kind of if you're especially if you're drawing from you know, the right side of the brain, you're not using a photo reference. So yeah. it's not unheard of, but it is a fun story. I will also say Maurice Sindag not just did, not only did a book called Where the Wild Things Are, also did a book called Outside Over There, which is about a girl who must rescue her little sister who was stolen by, you guessed it, motherfucking goblins. <laughs> so that is also why Sindak's uh, lawyers got involved. And hilariously enough, the credit at the end of the, in, in the, in the uh, that they list in the, in the credit roll is Jim Henson acknowledges his debt to the works of Maurice Sindak. Interesting. They, they had to add that after the, yeah, after the, the, after the law done come down on them, son. 
but yeah, I mean, come on, You're, Alice in Wonderland, Wizard of Oz. I mean, and the, all those books are in the room. I mean, it's like it is. It is a tale as old as time. But they just decided to make a batshit weird version of it, kind of like that weird dark uh, live action Alice in Wonderland. Remember that fucking weird shit? Return to Oz? Yeah. Oh no, no, no. Not re- was it Return to Oz? No, I'm thinking that there was also a weird live action Alice in Wonderland like sequel that was very. You're talking. Oh, okay. There's because uh, Return to Oz, what which had the Wheelers in it, and is a also young very Ball. upsetting. Yeah, yeah. A young uh, Brian Henson, Jim Henson's son, worked on that. Yes. And it was off of that uh, kind of uh, trial by fire that Jim Henson uh, kind of brought in uh, Brian, his son, who was around like 20, 21 at the time, to have a huge part in the making of this movie. Hey, Dad, I I made a bunch of puppet movies. Will you love me now? Can I work with you? Uh, Hey, yeah, sure. I've, uh, you know, (laughs) I have a use for you now. Can you let Mom out of the basement? She's been chained there for days. Ah, geez, I got a meeting with HBO. Gotta go. Oh, Dad, no! (laughs) Why are there so many (laughs) songs about my whiny son? And why won't he just do his job? How dare you? Every time you see me slacking off, you have to sing that song to me. Uh, well, so there, yes. Jim, you got to be to be, be easy on the boy. You don't know when, you know, cats in the cradle and all that. Wait, that's George Lucas? Yeah, it's me, George Lucas. <laughs> okay, I just wanted to make sure. Hey, and thanks, George. Me. You're a real good friend. Under pressure. Under pressure. Wait a th- under pressure. Hold on. If we're going uh, chronologically, at this point in the story, the Goblin King should be Michael Jackson. Oh, that is true. Under pressure. <laughs> yeah. I don't have that. That's why. Honestly, hold in. What is creepier? Oh, this movie boy. with Michael Jackson oh, as the Goblin King or this movie with David Bowie as the Goblin King now that we know all the shit David Bowie did? Definitely, I would say, uh, way, way worse to have Michael Jackson uh, in every way. And I wonder, do you think it would be good? Do you think people would like look at it as belovedly if Michael Jackson played? Both Both have an acting pedigree. Like yeah, Bowie yeah. had been in a bunch of stuff already. I think, I'm pretty sure by this point, Michael Jackson had put out Moonwalker and all that kind of stuff and proved that he could like kind of uh, the, It would have been, th- so the interesting thing is, all right, so... Uh, Jim Henson has uh, a directive uh, working with Froud. They want a goblin-based movie uh, <laughs> with a some kind of theme of a with human actors uh, kind of taking the protagonist roles, um, with a general theme of like childhood lost and like in Britain kind of uh, you know whatever the Bildungsroman journey into adulthood is. Uh, and one of the, his early ideas was we sh- they should have a contemporary like pop artist be the Goblin King and they could write songs and perform them in the movie. And among the, uh, and in 1983, Michael Jackson was hot off of Thriller uh, and Bowie was hot off of Let's Dance, which was his 15th album and was a his biggest commercial hit by like leagues to that point. You know, there was Modern Romance also off that album. Huge thing. Um, and Sting, Sting was also in the running. And according to uh, Brian Henson, uh, he was asked which person he would like someone his age would be the most excited about. And he lobbied heavily for Bowie. Um, but the Michael Jackson version, I feel like, you know, there would be less uh, menace, but the kind of weird, spoiled, boyish, yeah, uh, yeah. childish Goblin King would shine through more. And especially with the themes of like embracing adulthood and like rejecting childhood, it would have even more crazy meaning with Michael Jackson in the role. I guess that's true. Than uh, David Bowie as this like 
weird androgynous like entry into accepting adult love. Totally, totally. I agree. Well, let's take it back to the script uh, before we get more into the cast. Froud and Henson then meet with children's author Dennis Lee about the project. Lee is best known for his book of children's poems titled Alligator Pie. The uh, Henson connection for Dennis Lee is that he composed music. Yeah. For Fraggle Rock. Yes. He was uh, part of the Fraggle Rock creative team, and that's why Henson kind of uh, was had him on tap to hit him up for this. It's kind of a side note because they don't really go with this a lot, but Lee writes a no- novella based on Froud and Henson's early concepts. They hand this over, and or he hands this over in 1983. It's this poetic novella, and next they approach Terry Jones. Terry Jones... Uh, you may have, uh, you may know that name from Monty Python. Uh, he was recommended by Jim Henson's daughter after reading his children's book, The Saga of Eric the Viking, which is about a Viking warrior who set sail on his ship, the Golden Dragon, to find the land where the sun goes at night. Jones graduated from Oxford University with a degree in English. Then he and his writing partner, Michael Palin, uh, went on to co-create Monty Python's Flying Circus, along with Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Eric Idle, and Terry Gilliam. And you know, looking at the script, or thinking about the script and watching the movie, it is uh, kind of interesting to note that Jones is credited, when it comes to Monty Python's Flying Circus, with the show's wild structure that flows from one sketch to the next. He also ends up directing Holy Grail, Life of Brian, and The Meaning of Life. That, when you look at the structure of Labyrinth very much feels like that. It flows from scene to scene to scene and it just keeps moving forward but in all these different like sliced up parts essentially. In the making of documentary uh, for Labyrinth which was I think aired on TV in the 80s it had uh, you can find on YouTube but it's definitely one of those like promo like uh, TV special kind of behind the scenes things not like a modern like documentary kind of deal. Uh, Jones admits on camera that he wrote the screenplay basically by just going through Brian Froud's uh, concept sketches, finding goblins he liked and just building scenes around them, kind of just plucking one after the other, building this kind of weird uh, cavalcade of fanciful characters, each with their own kind of comedic game. Especially because he doesn't really love this poetic novella, kind of scraps almost all of it, except for like a couple of little bits. Mm -hmm. So yeah, working off of Froud's illustrations. Uh, Henson, upon visiting Jones's house, became enamored with his dog, a long-haired Jack Russell Terrier named Mitch the Bitch, (laughs) who served as the basis for Sir Didymus in the film. However, this script would change quite a lot. Jake mentioned that before. Uh, It really keeps changing up until right before it is filmed. Uh, He is solely credited as the screenplay writer, but... As Jake is about to tell us, that that is not quite the case. So the thing that happens is um, they get Terry Jones. They have, uh, which who is a huge get, like literally one of the king, you know, Monty Python, so many uh, movies behind his belt. They're going for that European fantasy chops. uh, You know, it feels like a very British production. There's a British fantasy with that kind of like, um, uh, what, what do you call it? Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Irreverence that Discworld kind of flavor where, you know, yes, they're goblins and trolls, but they can still like complain about their fallen arches and like have weird little uh, persnickety recognizable character traits uh, taken from the real world. It's all very, it's all there, but the script is apparently kind of all over the place. It kind of feels like Terry Jones just took random characters and created these random scenes about them and that it kind of lost its heart. It was a little too jokey. 
And so uh, they brought it in uh, and gave it to Laura Phillips, who was a writer on Fraggle Rock, who was going to like smooth it over and kind of create a more coherent story around it. But then that kind of neutered all the jokes, which again, uh, Henson wanted a more lighthearted kind of, I, I keep saying sassy, but a more Muppety sensibility to the Dark Crystal. And uh, that goes back to Terry Jones, who does more rewrites. Supposedly, there's up to like 28 different versions of the script that were all getting bounced around. Uh, Bowie at one point is shown the script and he uh, is dissatisfied with it. So it gets bounced back again. It showed to him, by the way, backstage at a concert uh, with like illustrations and stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. Henson went to David Bowie in his... uh, uh, what was it called? Uh, whatever the tour was for uh, Let's Dance. Which Let's was Dance. I'm the sure Serious it was Moonlight the... Tour. Uh, it Jim wasn't Henson. called the Let's Dance Tour? No. What's going on these days? What's happening here? But uh, yeah, he went backstage. Jim Henson did, presented uh, concept art and even showed him a, uh, a VHS copy of The Dark Crystal to kind of get him on board, which is hilarious. Um, <laughs> the But the magic sauce is... Elaine May of the classic comedy duo Nichols and May. Yes. Who uh, for decades did this completely uncredited. Uh, Brian Henson in interviews talks about how she was kind of flown in under cover of night and was working exclusively out of Jim Henson's personal home so that it wouldn't be revealed that he had brought in a separate script doctor. Yeah. Um, And around this time, she also co-wrote the script for Tootsie and Reds and Heaven Can Wait. Like uh, she, she you know, goes on to adapt uh, La Cage à Faux into the the Birdcage, which is uh, I think one of the best sc- film scripts possibly ever written. It's amazing. But she is uh, she's still alive, a, a living comedy legend, Elaine May. But it's her version of the script months before shooting that is the finalized script. And I feel like all the disparate elements that are kind of brought in the comedy from Terry Jones, the whimsy of Lee. And even, uh, what's her name, Linda Phillips' uh, uh, more sincere take on kind of adulthood, all finally get crammed together into this script, which I feel like is why it's so tonally all over the place. Because there is stuff about uh, Sarah's mom being a stage actress and, um, you know, her relationship with Lipstick and David Bowie as this looming figure. Uh, we'll get to the cod piece. We have to talk about the cod piece. We'll talk about the bulge, the battle of the bulge. We'll get into it. But uh, it really is, I think Elaine May is the hero from saving this from the kind of, uh, from being just too off the wall goofy and making it not stand alone as a movie. Yeah. And is also the self-seriousness because Elaine May does have that comedy background to keep the jokes and keep the humor that Terry Jones was bringing into it. But her involvement was an industry secret up until a couple of years ago. Yeah, I feel like she made it not, uh, uh, you know, as we know it now, it's a box office disaster, but a cult hit. Mm -hmm. I think it just would have been a disaster (laughs) if uh, May was not involved. And you're right. And I think that's what makes it. Well, there's a reason why this movie is as beloved as it is. And Time Bandits is still kind of a deep pull. Exactly. And that's the interesting question I'm trying to answer throughout this episode. I think for me, the main hook, hook point is like, what makes a movie a box office disaster, but like a massive, I mean, come on, the people who love Labyrinth, I mean, literally pretty much 
most women in my this our age range, I will say, uh, generally fucking love this movie. Are just can't like dance magic dance comes on and they are just immediately swept back to a time in their childhood. What makes a movie like that? You know that that have that kind of success, and so we keep revisiting. But I think the fact that it yes had so many different voices, so many different hands in the pot but just was barely smoothed out enough to become the product that it became is why it weirdly did not do great in the theater, but became this like, again, rainy day, Sunday afternoon hit became that movie that every time you go to blockbuster, you see if it's available, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of hit. And uh, I love that for it. But yeah, going back to the cast, uh, a couple more things about Bowie. Uh, He definitely clicked with the character describing him as, quote, a spoiled child, vain and temperamental, kind of like a rock star. And that was always the approach. Let's make him this sexy rock star. And that's why he has this allure that, again, makes one maybe feel weird in the pants at the age that they're at. I think they were going for that. Froud said in an interview that his character is really, uh, that his character is really what is inside the protagonist Sarah's head as she is nearing the the age of sexual awakening, a time when rock stars would make one feel all confused. Froud says, there are references to all sorts of things in his costume. There's the danger of a leather boy in his leather jacket, which also has a reference uh, to the armor of a certain type of German knight in it. There are references to Heathcliff from Wuthering Heights, and the tight trousers are a reference to ballet dancers. He's an amalgam of the inner fantasies of this girl. Everyone will always talks about Bowie's perv pants. But there was a reason for it all. It has a surface that's fairly light, but then every so often you go, oh my God, how did we get away with that? And so, yeah, it was intentional, that fucking dirty penis bulge. In the uh, in an interview with Brian Henson, uh, he claims that Shroud kept making the codpiece bigger and bigger in the concept art, and Jim Henson was looking at these, and he his reaction was, that's perfect. That's what the movie is about. She's a teen girl who wants to be treated like an adult, but whoa, that thing's scary. And at one point, he was actually a character, Bulgy, the talking bulge. They had four <laughs> operators operating the bulge, and he was just like, hey, you want to see what's up in me? And uh, like all these really uncomfortable lines. Well, there was, uh, obviously, there was a little person in the pants and then four radio operators, each uh, one in charge of each ball, one in charge of the shaft, and one in charge of the tip and then together coordinated it was how that character was made unfortunately it was cut for time from the final movie sometimes i think about having some sex but i'm just a talking bulge hey jim uh, I, I have a question about bulgy i feel like uh you know a lot of the <laughs> subtext is kind of removed if he just talks about fucking all the time <laughs> oh gee oh gee george that's a really great idea uh, yeah i think i get what you're calling okay uh, cut cut the bulge. Cut the bulge, you guys. I'm one of your daughters. Do you even remember my name, Jim? Uh, are you, can you fit inside this, uh, this Bigfoot costume? I need someone to work yeah, the left leg. fine. I'll be Bigfoot. <laughs> I'll be Biggie Big, the Bigfoot man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Less talky, more puppety. Great, thanks. <laughs> so, yeah, I do think that's very interesting. You know, I think when people talk about Labyrinth, they talk about it in a way that was almost like an accidental 80s weirdness, mm-hmm. you know, that there was all this sexual undertones. But no, they were completely going for that the whole time. And just like, you know, the labyrinth itself and all the characters in the labyrinth you see in her childhood bedroom. So, of course, Bowie is this confused, like his whole outfit is based on being a confused 
version of uh, a young girl's like sexual thoughts. The creepy you know? thing, the creepiest thing about the Bowie as uh, the, the looming threat of adult sexuality in my head is that in the beginning, uh, besides all that stuff he conf- definitely did, um, is because uh, in the opening pan, in Sarah's scrapbook, there are all the. It's never explained on screen that these are like all the photos she keeps around are of her birth mother, uh-huh. and that's why she's living with her stepmother. But David Bowie, there's a photo of David Bowie and her birth mother, yeah. kind of embracing each other, and that leads us to believe that maybe David Bowie is like the other man that her mom left them for, right. or like was a yeah. co-star of hers. So and weird. Like uh, she's applying makeup and all these like costume stuff in the mirror. And, in, and it seems like she's trying to emulate the women, the woman in the photos, but we don't know that that's her birth mother. So, like, literally, what the fuck is going on in this movie? Who knows? It's all been lost in the screenplay shuffle. You know, I will say he does a great job. I think he's a really solid actor in this and in other things. I did not realize uh, that he actually, uh, he started out in music, but then he took a break. And in the late 60s, he studied drama under Lindsey Kemp under whom he studied mime, Commedia dell'arte, and the avant-garde theater. And this is how he came to adopt those personas in Ziggy Stardust and Aladdin Sane and made him actually really primed for acting roles. He starred in many, or was at least in many different films. Um, He also wanted to, quote, be involved in the music writing aspect of a movie that would appeal to children of all ages as well as everyone else. And I must say that gave, uh, and I must say that Jim gave me a completely free hand with it. So that's... uh, I think another interesting element, another hand, uh, you know, another part of the tone of this whole thing are those songs. But let's uh, get off of Bowie. We've been on it too long in that bulging, dirty penis bulge. Uh, Jennifer Connelly played the role of Sarah. I mean, now we know her as just this amazing actor throughout her her career, but it all started around this time. She was modeling at just 10 years old, and uh, at the age of 12, uh, I think it was like maybe her first like big audition she got her first acting gig in Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America. Soon after that, she plays the lead in the Italian horror film Phenomena, and uh, as well as the coming-of-age movie Seven Minutes in Heaven. Those both come out in 1985, uh, and of course, Labyrinth would be the next role she gets after that. Many young actresses were up for the role. Helena Bonham Carter, Jane Krakowski, Sarah Jessica Parker, Marissa Tomei, Laura Dern. Connolly is the one who wins Henson over, however, because she, quote, could act that kind of dawn twilight time between childhood and womanhood. That's what they were looking for. That's what the movie's about. Connolly has since stated about working with Bowie that she, quote, wasn't cool enough to get what working with him really meant, but also that he was incredibly kind to her, made her feel incredibly comfortable almost immediately, and they had, like, a really fun, uh, time working on this movie from the sounds of it. The other one you already mentioned, we mentioned Toby Froud plays Toby Williams, little baby. Uh, of course, his father's Brian Froud. His Brian's wife was also um, underneath Bowie during shoots to make sure she did, he didn't drop the babe. Uh, and uh, yeah, they he actually, Brian Froud met his wife while working on The Dark Crystal. They married in 1980. Toby was born while they were in pre-pro for Labyrinth. So they were like, fuck it, let's just go with him. Another thing from the documentary that stuck with me is when they were talking about casting Jennifer Connelly, uh, Jim Henson just really like everybody. Jim Henson keeps talking about how much he just doesn't have to like treat her like a child and how well she takes direction. And like all the quotes are like, yes, I felt like I could talk very straight with, to her. I didn't have to tiptoe around her feelings. Yeah, 
Exactly. I, I laughed at that, which means like, yeah, he's that's so funny. Like, he's I'm going to drop like, you she, in a stink pit. Don't complain about it. <laughs> she wasn't a fucking asshole like those other fucking kids. I, compared to how he talks about working with the baby, it seems like working with Jennifer Connelly was a lot <laughs> less uh, stressful. Bowie also says about Connelly, besides being quite beautiful, she's a very good actress. And one forgets that she's 14. She's really quite mature, which... Ha <laughs> fun, fun. Love to hear it. Yeah. Uh, I Also, with Toby, you always see him surrounded by these terrifying goblins, crying his eyes out. You just think it's got to be the worst time ever for this baby. Apparently, he had no problem with the goblins and was actually totally like, n- they had to purposely keep him up past nap time to get him that upset during the goblin scene. So don't worry, it wasn't as abusive. It was only mildly abusive what they did to him. Big shout outs as well to Michael Motion, who oh did the my crystal God, ball we- contact juggling. I think one of the most iconic elements of Labyrinth we haven't even talked about, and that would be that crystal ball like gravity juggling. So Mike Motion almost deserves his own episode. He is a MacArthur genius uh, recipient in the field of juggling the you know all the I, I you're we're all old enough to remember like the fushigi ball craze that kind of uh, came around in the 2000s it was him that like invented the very idea of that like spinny contact juggling art form you can find some of his specials on youtube and they are captivating um you know he doesn't have like the juggling patter he doesn't have like a huge stage presence it is raw uh skill of like manipulating objects and creating a rhythm within them. Like he, it is, he is like, I don't know. He's the Michael Jordan of juggling. And they brought him in to be David Bowie's like hand during all those juggling shots. And it's so brutal, especially in the behind the scenes footage watching him like, because what is juggling? What is the skill that you most associate with juggling? It's hand eye coordination and Mike motion, this legendary juggler, literally could not look at his own hands while he was doing this. And so uh, David Bowie talks about how these scenes were all done in good fun and he had a blast and he just felt bad for Mike Motion. Uh, Motion spelled M-O-S-C-H-E-N. Like that's actually his name. It's not like a play on the motion of the juggling. Like it's whatever, it's not a station. Anyway, um, and so there's footage of Mike Motion like tucked behind a cloak, his like head pressed against David Bowie's back as hard as he can so he can't be seen on camera with his gloved hand just dropping ball after ball after ball as a production assistant keeps handing him out of a cardboard box full of those acrylic crystal balls until they finally like nail a single take and they yell cut. Like every single one of those juggling scenes had to be redone and redone and redone because even... The most talented juggler in the world still has to look at his fucking hands while he does it. So, and Bowie weirdly just thinks it's hilarious the whole time, too. Yeah. It's just like kind of had insult injury. Bulge, penis bulge. <laughs> uh, all right, let's talk about the puppetry, please. Can we not have the song parodies for a second? Let's do puppetry. Henson wanted the voices of the various creatures in the film to be different from anything he'd done before with Muppets, Sesame Street, etc. So while he did have Henson Company mainstays like Frank Oz, Karen Prell, 
Steve Whitmire and Dave Goltz perform as puppeteers. He mostly had other folks do the voices, British actors such as David Shaughnessy, who did the voices for Sir Didymus and The Hat, and Timothy Bateson, who did uh, one of the Four Guards and The Worm. Uh, all these different things just to separate again. He's trying to get under, out from under that Muppets cloud a little bit here. Brian Henson, as we mentioned before, uh, Jim Henson's son, he would go on to direct Muppet Christmas Carol. He was one of the puppeteers and voice for Hoggle. Let's get into Hoggle. Let's get into Hoggle, son. Brian Henson operated the face while Sherry Weiser was inside the costume doing the body movements. And there were four members who were also all on radio crew. Henson said... Five performers trying to get one character out of one puppet was a very tough thing. Basically, what it takes is a lot of rehearsing and getting to know each other. And to watch this in the behind the scenes, and again, I believe we both watched it on YouTube. The Inside the Labyrinth is very cool if you want to see some of those behind the scenes, like operating of the puppets and stuff. It's always fun to watch. It seems like a fucking ordeal, Jake. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So uh, Brian Henson famously is very apologetic about his terrible British accent in the voice of Hoggle. (laughs) He was not supposed to be the voice of Hoggle. They were supposed to find someone later like they did with the other characters. But the amount of coordination necessary to keep the face and the lip sync and everything working uh, just necessitated that he's there on the set with the rest of the team to like deal with the realities of the puppet. It was... Uh, the head itself had 18 motors, like you said, four people controlling the operation. Um, Sherry, the little person in the body, was uh, originally supposed to have a camera in her chest and that let her see like through a video camera in the mask. But it caused her to have debilitating motion sickness because she would turn her head instinctively, but her eyesight wouldn't change and she would immediately like collapse on the ground. So her... Field of view was actually, her whole face was painted pitch black and um, she could see through Hoggle's mouth when it was open. And Brian Henson says that uh, the vocalization, the characterization of Hoggle always kind of muttering to himself, always, anytime Hoggle moves, there's always like a, is literally just so that Sherry could see where the hell she was going in the suit while she was on set. It seems fucking so difficult. Another thing that I think is terrifying is if you look at Hoggle's hands, because Hoggle is grasping things, he's holding on to stuff. Those are like uh, just this exoskeleton of metal claws under latex that Sherry remotely operated with her own hands. To, and 
They had to do tons of rehearsals. Like imagine trying to pick up a plastic bracelet with like one of those uh, shark grabby mouths you played with as a kid on a stick. You know what I'm talking about, Holden? Oh, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, the grabby things. Yeah, the grabby things. It was just a a nightmare for all involved. Yeah, it just seemed really crazy. Another really crazy one would definitely also be uh, Ludo. He was Ludo Chris because he was so heavy. Uh, originally, his the costume for Ludo, the big you know monster, kind of Bigfootish monster, uh, was over a hundred pounds. They were able to manage to get it down to seventy five. That said, they had a famous Australian sculptor Hans Ronald Muick uh, puppeteer the creature, but uh, uh, there would also a man named Rob Mills also operated the suit because it was so heavy they had to switch those two guys out just to give them breaks. It sounds like an absolute nightmare. Uh, all of, That goes back to all like Jim Henson productions are just so much harder to pull off than any normal film. Yeah, I mean, the idea of making this movie, this movie would not work if it was just Jennifer Connelly on behind a green screen with some like dude in a mocap suit yeah. with the little triangles just being like, hey, it's me, I'm Hoggle, look over here, I'm doing a thing, they'll add it later. <laughs> British, British, uh, British. Connelly even says that like, you know, this, this happens a lot with people who worked on these like classic uh, practical effects uh, blockbusters is it's just so much easier to work alongside these puppets and animatronics because they're there, they respond, they react to you. And it's, you know, you forget that they even are puppets. Yeah. You're you're just there acting alongside this creature. Yeah, it's pretty wild. It took them a little while. I know Bowie also talked about how it took a little while to settle in to uh, acting with them, especially because, you know, with the animatronic ones or, or the more complex ones, you know, the vocalist for the person doing this, the voice for the puppet was like somewhere off, you know, offset, mm-hmm. off to the side. And that, the, but they eventually really got used to it and got over it. But yeah, even still, it's better than a dude in a mocap suit. But yeah, r- crazy puppet stuff. Love it. I mean, that whole final scene with all the, I forget how crazy the end of Labyrinth is. I feel like it's the kind of movie with you the start MC Escher room. Yeah. Yeah, with that, all that stuff, but also just and the uh, the giant goblin fucking war and all the different puppets involved in that, and all the different um, crazy things. There's a fucking machine gun in that movie. Oh my it's god, I love that scene with the machine gun goblin, and they crush him with a giant rock, and then they just cut to him giving a little goblin thumbs up, going like, "Ah, that could have been worse," <laughs> like because <laughs> it was vital. Yeah, Jim Henson literally was like, bloody. "I want a climactic battle scene, but I don't want gore or violence. That's not the yeah. kind of movie I want." Hundred percent. So it's and a silly battle it. scene, and it kind of works. It kind of works. Uh, also, shout outs to Gates McFadden, who played Doctor Beverly Crusher on Star Trek: The Next Generation. She was director of choreography and puppet movement. She choreographed the musical numbers, including the masquerade ball dance, and also worked with the puppeteers on their movements. Henson selected her because not only was she trained in dance, but she was also trained and taught in clowning, mask work, improvisation. He's really looking for someone who was like something different, not just a choreographer that could get in there, work with these uh, puppeteers, work with these different kind of strange, uh, you know, movement uh, approaches. And uh, yeah, I think that stuff came off really well. That ballroom dance scene is such a classic, the masquerade. We'll talk about just a little bit how what what inspired that. 
Um, getting more into the filming, uh, some sets were quite complex to build, including Goblin City with its warped perspectives and strange architecture. And it's just like it's a whole city. There was also the Shaft of Hands. This was filmed on a 30 feet high rig. I think it was 40, actually. The camera was mounted to a 40 foot vertical camera track. 75 performers supplied the 150 hands needed for the scene. There were an additional 200 fake foam rubber hands that filled out the shaft, Jake. And uh, man, it's so impressive in all those hand movements. I think it's one of the standout scenes in the whole in the whole movie that people remember. Brian Henson was in charge of kind of developing all the different facial and uh, puppet things with the hands, you know, the eyes and the mouth all coming together to create these various faces, um, which is, you know, wasn't done before. Uh, Terry Jones talks about how in his head, it was just people kind of doing the senior wences, just talking with your thumb, kind of like, or uh, I'm sorry, to use a modern reference, the uh, Cartman Jennifer Lopez technique, you know, just with your fist, just kind of going. Uh And so they had to innovate all those different ways to do it. Um, The puppeteers initially, because if you had everyone standing on platforms, uh, they wouldn't be able to be close enough together. You know, you can't have arms sticking through where another person's standing. Uh, So you would have it it didn't look right. So then they had everyone lying down flat on platforms with their hands sticking out because you could stack the people more densely. But that gave people uh, people got dizzy from laying down that long on their stomachs and they couldn't film that way. So everyone in the movie uh, in the shaft, the human puppeteers are all kind of at a 45 to 60 degree angle kind of leaned forward in a Superman pose. Yeah. Stacked one on top of each other. It's one of the cooler moments in the making of because you get a full look at like how tall that fucking shaft was and like the pullback on that. It is really impressive that they did that uh, practically mm-hmm. in the way that they did it. Uh, Brian also talks about uh, how Jim Henson kept trying to direct people being like, are you there? Who are <laughs> uh, on the upper right? You mean me? No <laughs> left. Like, cause there was, they were all behind a big black wall. They yeah. didn't know, tell who was and all the hands direction. look the same, exactly the same yeah. too, and have that terrifying look, like they're sco- like kind of clay, arthritic. Uh, they, apart. they wanted an yeah. arthritic look. Uh, also, another crazy shoot was definitely the dance magic magic dance musical number. This involved forty eight puppets controlled by fifty two puppeteers, as well as eight little people in goblin costumes uh, who were doing who were attached to wires, <laughs> so that when they do the jump magic jump, they end up like flying up in the air. That one seemed like just a hodgepodge. And sometimes you think that it would take this incredible organized effort to do a shoot like that. But actually, they brought in a lot of people last minute because they essentially decided they needed to like triple the amount of puppets in the scene in order to fill out the space. And it really was, seemed like kind of chaos. Like they just brought all these different creatures in. They did the best that they could to organize them all to do stuff, you know, to do the right thing for this shoot. And uh, I think it turned out, obviously it's iconic. So it, I think it turned out great. But yeah, it definitely was kind of a bit of madness the way that they pulled it together. The uh, Brian Henson just says that, you know, uh, when the shooting was done and everybody went home, that set looked uh, like Swiss cheese. It looked like it could not yeah. be standing. There were so many holes cut out underneath and around it just for all the puppeteers to fit again very fun that's why you go watch those making of specials very fun to see 
the little the innards of that uh, shoot for sure. Um, by the way, George Lucas did show up one day alongside Darth Vader, who gave Henson a good luck card and a bottle of champagne. There's a black and white photo of that. That's pretty fun, George. Uh, and uh, moving on to the ballroom scene, I mentioned before I was going to come back to that. This was inspired by a real-life masquerade ball that Henson and co. had been putting on. Henson said, we started this as a lark three years ago, and we had so much fun. We have a wonderful shop of really creative people, and given the opportunity to play like this, they come up with some wonderful things. And, of course, it got popular Pretty quickly, outside of just Henson & Co., it took place in New York City at the Starlight Ballroom in the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. Soon enough, celebrities were going out there. Andy Warhol described it as, it's the best costume party I've ever been to. I can only imagine you get a bunch of people from Jim Henson's workshop to like put together elaborate costumes for a masquerade ball. I'm jealous. That would be so much fucking fun. And so they actually even, uh, for the that year's masquerade ball, they pulled a bunch of stuff from the Labyrinth set. For uh, so they kind of art came back into real life in a, in a certain way, but that that's such a bizarre scene because it's all adults. Sarah's the only girl, kid; she's supposed to be out of place. And again, this was them trying to lure her, Jareth the Goblin King, and these other attendees at the Masquerade Ball, trying to lure her into adulthood. It's very like Catcher in the Rye ish a little bit, you know, about it, holding back from it's because it. she's out of place. She's like she's. She's clearly the only child. She's the only one without a mask. Uh, the masks themselves all are making the people look like goblins. Yeah. Um, she got drawn into that by eating the forbidden peach. Dear God, the symbolism there. <laughs> and it's, you know, she shatters that illusion only to walk right into the uh, junkyard uh-huh. where she's given a replica of her childhood bedroom yes, and the comforts and- of childhood. And that, she also has to shatter as like that illusion also shatters kind of representing that she has to do these things on her own terms and kind of uh, that, you know, maybe it is a very weird lesson when all is said and done, because like at one point it's about her embracing adulthood, but also she tells Jareth, you have no power over me. Yeah. Uh, She comes back to the real world and like in theory, she's accepted responsibility and transition, but also she tells Hoggle, but I do need you. And then she just has a weird Mardi Gras party with all the Yeah, creatures. yeah, with all her kind of uh, creatures inspired by her toys. That almost feels like a reshoot or just like, a you know, they shot like a happy ending and a sad, a sad ending, ending. And the yeah. test audiences were like, I like it when they have a big party at the end. It's very She's, weird. Yeah, I believe the sad ending, she, she joins the fiery gang and <laughs> rips her, her head, head off. off. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so it becomes a weird body horror yeah, sort yeah. of Cronenberg thing. It, it goes full Cronenberg right at the end. <laughs> Trevor Jones did the score, returning from The Dark Crystal. He also did scores for stuff such as Mississippi Burning, The Last of the Mohicans. It was broken up into six different tracks. Bowie did five songs for the movie. Underground, which is great. Magic Dance, a classic. Chili Down, As the World Falls Down, and Within You. There are music videos for Underground and As the World Falls Down, which has Bowie performing in them with clips from the movie and even some new moments between Bowie and the film's various creatures. Really cool. You know, that soundtrack has since become uh, legendary. People love it. uh, And it's great. I mean, Bowie really did some great work, I think, on the music for this film. Uh, Another weird, interesting tidbit, and we're getting into pre-production or post-production now, rather, 
that owl in the opening credits, actually, that is the first use of realistic CGI, uh, an, a realistic CGI animal in a film. I would use the phrase realistic very loosely, Holden. <laughs> it <laughs> sticks out like a sore thumb. It's very weird. I think for the time, I think for the time, it was like pretty, pretty uh, groundbreaking. But yes, agreed. It does not hold up CGI wise, but they, still that they even they went for it. It's not explicitly stated in the movie, but it's very heavily accepted that Jareth is the owl. Yes, he's under in disguise as the owl that's why he's like there watching her per- perform her like play in the field he's he's tracking her he's you know he's already a presence before you know she wishes the uh the baby to be taken by the goblins. in earlier versions of the script uh Jareth was explicitly trying to have a goblin bride and was using the baby as a lure as opposed to what is in the final movie that he takes the baby and wants the baby as part of the weird deal. And he's just like kind of antagonizing Sarah because she's trying to take the baby back. Yeah. Uh, the the By the way, the owl CGI was created by animators Larry Yeager and Bill Croyer. Give them credit where credit is due. The fire gang scene was pretty much only kept because of how impressive the puppetry was. But they had a lot of issues in post. They uh, filmed it against a black velvet cloth to hide the puppeteers. Later, they added this forest background. Hence, it was not super keen. And none of us are super keen on the compositing work, looking back uh, on the early you know, version of green screen work that we would come to know. Definitely looks like they are very much so like placed in front of a fake background. Um, like it w- The effect would have been better if they had just projected, if they had had the puppeteers in white and just projected the scene behind them. Like it's that yeah, out of place. 100%. And uh, man, that song is so weird. The Fireys are so weird, man. I-, I love that they exist in the movie and at the same time, like they shouldn't maybe exist in the movie. George Lucas jumped in during the editing as stated before. Henson said, when we hit the editing, I did the first cut and then George was heavily involved in, in bringing uh, in bringing it, it to the final cut. After that, I took it over again and did the next few months of post-production and audio. When you edit a film with somebody else, you have to compromise. I always want to go one way and George goes another way, but we each took turns trading off giving and taking. George tends to be very action-oriented and he cuts dialogue quite tight. I tend to cut looser and go for more lyrical pauses, which can slow the story. So I loosen up his tightness and he tightens my looseness. Ooh, bulge penis bulge, Jake. <laughs> bulge penis bulge. So yeah, the movie uh, premieres at the London Film Festival. Prince Charles and Princess Diana were in attendance. There's footage of it. It is very surreal yes. watching Prince Charles just walk up to Ludo and be like, well, isn't this a fanciful lad? Because Ludo was there, uh, Jennifer Connelly. Yeah, they're all, yeah, there's some really fun pictures of that. Um, the movie, though, does, as we were alluding to, it opens number eight in the U.S. box office behind. Here are the films that open behind. Karate Kid Part 2, Back to School, Legal Eagles, Ruthless People, Running Scared, Top Gun, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So some of those movies, it makes sense. Some of the other movies you're like, Legal Eagles, damn. Okay. Oh <laughs> wait, wait. No one wanted. Wait, a- Ferris Bueller's Day Off uh, beat Labyrinth. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and Top Gun. But I mean, that makes sense. Uh, you know, do you t- want to Gun. know a weird bit of uh, history? Please. Brian Henson ended up marrying Mia Sarah, who played Sloane in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I'm glad you brought this up, and I think it was. Uh, did he? Didn't he not? Wasn't it? Uh, she shooting Legend nearby, and that's how they met. 
I don't, I didn't get that far, but that makes, that's hilarious if that's true. Yeah, yeah. They, they were like in adjacent sh- sets and he like fell in love with, maybe I'm thinking of someone different. Anyways, that's a fun piece of history. Um, and of course, the, but of course the, the film ends up becoming a big, much bigger success on home video and DVD at the time. when I mean, Blockbuster is like huge. Video rentals are huge. Just, I mean, just hold on. Just so you can pull your hair out. These, I looked up some reviews of Labyrinth when it came out. Uh, Roger Ebert said, the movie is an impressive production that is often good to look at. Some real thought went into it and David Bowie's soundtrack is fine. Yet there's something missing. It never really comes to comes alive. The movie is too long without a strong plot line to pull us through. All movies like this run the danger of becoming just a series of incidents. There's no structure to the order of the adventures. Sarah does this. She does that. She's almost killed here, almost trapped there until at last nothing much matters. Which is like, yeah, that's a fairy tale. That's a fairy tale. That's Wizard of Oz. That's Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. That's like- I don't disagree with that take, though. And I even mentioned before how the writing of it, uh, what was it, Terry Jones, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, was known for that kind of writing with Monty Python's Flying Circus. And I think that's very much what we have here, a series of events just, and then this happens. And then she goes here, and then this happens. with it, And it doesn't really, like, circle back in a meaningful way that said i think that kind of format is fucking perfect for that you know vhs on a you know vhs tape on a sunday rainy sunday afternoon when sometimes you're getting distracted by things or you're going off to to run into the restroom and it doesn't really matter because you're just going to be in this thing i think it's just the perfect like Family movie, you know, throw it on. and, and, and Here's another gut punch. Gene Siskel said, um, it has been said many times before in this space that the sight of a baby in peril is one of the sleaziest gimmicks a film can employ to gain our attention. <laughs> but funny. Henson does it. And that's almost unimaginable considering the enormous amount of good he has contributed through Sesame Street. Equally pathetic is the film's attempt to reach the teenage <laughs> audience through the presence of the, and music of David Bowie, who looks as out of place in this film as if he were hosting at the Grand Ole Opry. Like, one star. What the fuck? Oh, yeah, well, that guy's dead. <laughs> They're both dead. <laughs> They're both fucking dead. Well, um, you know, I don't think they're necessarily completely wrong, but I think they misjudged totally the heart mi- of the movie. The and I think they misjudged the the... Yeah, totally miss miss the point and of of what it was bringing. But again, they're not like little girls, you know what I mean? And uh, I think that even I can appreciate that more now uh, than I did even when I was younger because I see what they're going for and I see how much it meant to so many people. I think that Labyrinth has only become meaningful to me because of how meaningful it is to Lexi, how meaningful it is to so many of my friends, you know, Jackie. And, you know, it, it's just, it's this incredibly important film for a lot of them in these weird ways, in like sexual ways, and, and also in childishness ways. It's a fun, nut, it's a fun nut to crack, I think. It's a cool, it's a cool cookie. I will say, uh, watching the movie with my lovely fiance, Marie, a Marie, yada 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 um she 100 percent like disavows the uh kind of interpretation of the movie where you know it's about sarah's like gaining maturity and accepting responsibility she 100 percent buys sarah's framing and doesn't and is just like nah her parents are assholes <laughs> like what does it matter whether or not she uses her time to play and make believe in the park or go on dates that's like that's a weird bullshit thing that like a, a girl has to go on dates to be like 
to have a valid life. Like, you know, there, it's a very fun thing that Sarah's plight does resonate so well with different viewers. Well, as much of a uh, failure as it was at first, uh, Bowie has since said, every Christmas a new flock of children comes up to me and says, oh, you're the one who's in Labyrinth. And uh, Jennifer Connelly said, I still get recognized for Labyrinth by little girls in the weirdest places. I can't believe they still recognize me from that movie. It's on TV. Oh, yeah, whatever, Jennifer. You look the exact same. You haven't aged a day. It's on TV all the time, and I guess I pretty much look the same. Yes, you do. That's what, you know what? That's why she married Paul Bettany. Are they married? They might be like weird common law. I believe they're married. Uh, yeah, so they finally met, uh, little kids are like, oh mind. my God, it's vision. <laughs> and like she gets some of the <laughs> taken away. Uh, Brian Henson has spoken about how his father very disappointed by the initial uh, uh, outing for Labyrinth, eventually got to see how beloved the movie would become. And in the very short amount of time after it came out, he passed away not long after it came out, but did get to see it gain a lot more steam in the home video market and gain a lot more popularity uh, in, in, uh, in the cult sense. It even led, in years later... Uh, it even led, in later years, to attempts at a sequel and a reboot. The film Mirror Mask actually is written by Neil Gaiman, directed by Dave McKean. It exists in a world similarly inspired by Labyrinth. Originally, they were setting out to make a sequel, and then they just said, why don't we just make it like, you know, I believe it's like a, a, a circus family yeah. and the, a, a little boy that ends up getting like, whisked away into this like kind of circus-inspired uh, fantasy land that's also very labyrinth-inspired. That would go on direct-to-video. Um, uh, there's a four-volume comic released back in the mid-2000s titled Return to Labyrinth. It's about Toby as a teenager getting tricked into returning, of course, uh, via Jareth to the labyrinth. That's That sounds pretty interesting. Um, and in recent, more recent years, Brian Froud has been working on a stage musical along with Brian Henson and Jim and the Jim Henson Company since 2018. So who knows? That might happen. They're looking uh, at, I think... That Back to the Future musical we talked about a couple months back came out. Yeah. Like it's, it, it, it can happen. They, they're talking about it more in, in the sense of a West End London mm -hmm. uh, stage musical. So we'll see if it comes to the States, but here's for hoping. And also a sequel is still in talks in the works. In 2016, screenplay writer Nicole Perlman, who wrote on Guardians of the Galaxy and Detective Pikachu, announced she was hired to write a script with Lisa Henson set to produce. That would, of course, Jim Henson's daughter. Later, Scott Derrickson, director of Doctor Strange, was announced as director. And in February of 2021, Jennifer Connelly confirmed she, quote, had conversations, end quote, about being involved in a sequel. Very vague. Who knows? We'll see. I think it would be very interesting to return and to have Jennifer Connelly come back for it as well. And I think now it would be a big deal. Alden, I'm going to say what I always say. Just make a new movie. Just if you honestly think that we need another fanciful adventure full of yeah. uh, whimsical practical effects uh, featuring a young girl's journey. Just make that movie. Yeah. Just make it good. And I guess that's true. You know, yeah, but what about like a hard-boiled Jennifer Connelly, you know? Cast Jennifer Connelly in it. Let the fans like have their headcans and be like, oh my God, that's Sarah from uh, Maybe Labyrinth. she's like... It's like she's just she's been a, a, det a homicide detective for too long. We we open up on her just like throwing up in her own hands, looking at some guy's fucking whole head that was ripped off. Another missing in fireies. They say it's not related, <laughs> but I know. I know who's. She decides it. to go back to the labyrinth for one last gig. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think it'd be cool, but yeah, who knows? Uh, but I did. I do love this film. It's about it's such Hoggle. An anomaly. He's been found dead in an alleyway. <laughs> 
sucking his trying to suck his own dick, but we think it was staged. <laughs> we think the bulge did it. It's her quest to find David Bowie's bulge. You know, he's like, it's the black star. He's like doing his whole like final album and the thing. They just use CGI hologram David Bowie. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a great movie. There you go. It's called Bulge Penis Bulge Return to the Labyrinth fucking psycho clown style. <laughs> I'm very excited. <laughs> I'm very excited for that. Uh, yeah, and I think that about does it. That's our episode on the Labyrinth. Joaquin Phoenix gets uh, turns into Jareth <laughs> because he yeah. got off his medication. <laughs> because he fucking, yeah, he went so method as the Goblin King. He became him. Um, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I think that is our episode on the labyrinth. We hope we, we did you justice. I hope you enjoyed my parody song, Bulge mm-hmm. Penis Bulge. I hope you enjoyed my uh, David Bowie accent and all the many trappings of a standard Wizard of the Bruiser episode. Uh, if you'd like to follow us further or support us further as well, check out patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. We've got weekly bonus episodes. We've started a new thing up called Wizard and the Newser, where we're talking about current events. So if you want that style of podcast from us, uh, we are starting to do that now on Patreon and as well as other bonus content. Catch catch it on there at the $5 level, just $5 a month, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Catch me on twitch.tv forward slash Ho. Uh, I do streams. I'm back on my on my full stream schedule. Monday, Tuesday, Friday streams. It's always a blast. Monday's like kind of the more like State of the Union stream. I also do cocktails that night and play games. Kind of your basic uh, a basic B stream. Tuesdays we do a big group hang, play games, play Jackbox, play Among Us. It's a lot of fun. And Fridays, me and my lovely lovely co-host Jackie do Jackin' with the Holdies. It's a pre-game party stream. You got it all, man. But you don't have a cartoon puppet, Jack. That's right. If you need a cartoon puppet, you should go to youtube.com slash puppet Jared, where I do a VTuber thing. That's right. A virtual tuber. Uh, We play games. We hang out. We make tier lists. We uh, watch some real weird ass uh, forgotten cartoons um, over at youtube.com slash puppet Jared. Give me give me a sub. Give me a watch. It helps out so immensely and really got to just got to just really heart sell you on that Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Tons of really great uh, bonus episodes for you to enjoy. If you've hit, if you've hit the end of this episode, you're still listening to the plugs. That's how much you enjoy this show, <laughs> and you're like, God, I wish there was more show. It's all there on Patreon. Hours and hours of stuff for you to listen to to help ease the drudgery of your horrible modern world. All right. Well, uh, I think that about does it. Hey, everybody, always remember, never stop bruising and keep on whizzing. Let's dance. Now get back in. Get back in the Bigfoot. Get back in the Bigfoot. Bulge, penis bulge. Get back in the Bigfoot bulge. All right, I'm done. I'm sorry. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Price drop? Time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.